0: Welcome to Valley Church. It's great to see you guys. If we haven't met before, my name is Michael and I am the pastor here. Um, We're kind of taking a few weeks to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, Last week we began with a short lesson in philosophy, um, and this week we begin with an even shorter lesson in a topic that I have even less authority to speak in, which is neurology. Um, Please do not view this as an invitation to talk further about neurology with me, because I know nothing else besides the three things that I'm going to say in a minute. I really know just uh, three words, two phrases, uh, neural pathways and neural plasticity. Neural pathways are essentially uh, well-worn ruts in our brain. I grew up riding dirt bikes with my dad and my brothers. We had a blast. Occasionally, we would ride on tracks or trails. And if the place was popular, there'd be be a section of that trail where the ground was particularly worn down, like sometimes inches and inches, just about the width of a dirt bike tire. And it was worn down because that was the exact path that lots of people took, um, other dirt bike riders, over and over again, eroding and displacing the dirt, forming a rut. That is the science of ruts. Um, it used to freak me out to try to ride in a rut because if you deviated from the rut at all, it would make you feel like you were gonna crash. Or, or sometimes I would want to take like a wider, safer turn on the trail than the rut had us taking. One time I did crash because I was trying to get out of a rut and hit the rut, the side of my tire, and the tire went out from underneath me and I fell. Um, can be risky trying to get out of them. Ruts can be good, they can show you kind of the best path of where, where you want to go, but they can also not be good if the end line of that path is not where you want to be. Back to my extensive knowledge and experience in neurology. Our brains also have ruts in them. They're called neural pathways. We have thought patterns and processes that become like well-worn ruts so that when we think about thing A, it usually makes us think about thing B, and then thing C, and before you know it, you're thinking of thing E and F. We essentially kind of train our brains to think down a specific path into specific ways of thinking or specific outcomes of thoughts. But our brains are also flexible. Neuroplasticity is the ability for us to kind of rewire our brains or to form new neural pathways, new ways of thinking where we used to have a deep rut uh, or one way of thinking. So neuroplasticity as I understand it um, and its concepts can be helpful in like alleviating trauma and PTSD and phobias, things like that. I also think it can be good uh, in, when we do theology, when we read the Bible and we wanna understand what's here. Um, I recently read this book called The Power of Moments by uh, the authors Chip and Dan Heath, talk about this concept in one of the chapters called Tripping Over the Truth. And I'm gonna read a story or I'm gonna tell, abbreviate a story that they share in this book. It's fascinating and gross. And uh, if you have just hoped that we would talk about poop someday from the stage, today's your day. There's a sanitation development organization that helps reduce open defecation in countries around the world. In the hopes to reduce kind of serious disease and illness that can be prevalent in these, you know, villages that have a high percentage of open defecation. So this group uh, would come into these places and build latrines, bathrooms, in these countries or these villages, and then would return to find them mostly unused. Sometimes it's because these facilities they made were actually nicer than their homes, and so they didn't think it was made sense to put their human waste in these nice new buildings, or they would literally like, remove parts, materials, from these things that were built and have them better service their other areas of their life that were more important. So this organization thought that basically they had a hardware problem, like they just needed better bathroom tech and that would stop the poop problems, but it wasn't the issue. It also didn't work to simply kind of present the information and the data with like scientific journals and information like that, Uh, it just didn't work. Um, That was not convincing. The data didn't fix it and the tech didn't fix it and so this organization came up with a different solution. Uh, A guy named Dr. Kamal Kar developed the CTLS, community-led total sanitation project or effort. And here's what they would do. A facilitator would come into one of these villages and ask them where in the village they would uh, go poop. And then he would walk, they'd kind of attract a crowd, and they would walk the crowd over to these areas so that the smell was just like, kind of overwhelming, it's kind of embarrassing, and he would ask people, like, raise your hand if you went here earlier today. Um, people would kind of you know, raise their hand and get all red and embarrassed. And then he'd have them draw a map of their village, marking out like where the school was and the church was and the market and mark out where their houses are. And then he'd give them yellow chalk to mark out uh, where they would defecate around the village, kind of what are the main areas. And then he'd have them mark out where would they go if there was an emergency, if they couldn't make it to those kind of standard areas. And essentially the map would inevitably just be covered in yellow chalk. They were literally pooping everywhere. Are you tired of me talking about poop? Because I'm not done yet. It gets better. Then this facilitator would get a glass of water and ask someone, you know, fill it up, ask someone if they'd be willing to drink it, and they'd say, sure. But then he would take a hair from his head, dip it into someone's poop that they were standing next to still, and then swirl it in the water and say, how about now? Would you like to drink the water now? And they, in disgust, say, absolutely not. And then he asked, how many legs does a fly have? They would say six. And then he would ask, would a, would a fly's serrated legs pick up more or less hair than, uh, less poop than a human hair, which is not serrated? Um, and they say, probably more. He would ask, ask them, have you seen flies kind of landing on your food off and on? Yes. Do you throw away your food when that happens? No. And so in the course of this conversation, the reality starts to hit them, that they are eating each other's crap all the time. So they're like the crowds on Pentecost after Peter's sermon, it says like they were cut to the heart and they're like brothers, what should we do? They have just tripped over the truth. It wasn't presented on a spreadsheet. They didn't just kind of jump to the end result of building the bathroom, they helped them see like why was this so important? The facilitator created an experience for the truth to kind of hit them in the face. It might not be today, but I would like for us to try to trip over the truth together. And I'd actually like that to be a kind of a regular thing that happens here. I wanna at least give the opportunity for theology, our understanding of God to jump off the pages and give us a loving smack in the face. Um, I don't really want to just tell you what I think about the Holy Spirit or simply correct things that we may or may not be getting wrong. Ideally, we'd be willing to step out of our neural pathways, step out of the ruts that maybe we've been thinking in, that you'd be willing, that I'd be willing to trip over the truth in Scripture. And it's very possible, maybe, I'd even say likely, that we might end up at a very similar place of understanding and thinking that you're at right now. Uh, Maybe you're nailing it and you feel like you just have a robust understanding of the work of the Spirit in you and in the church, but I will just say, I do not, I do not have that. I am learning right now in real time, week to week. I might be studying like a handful of weeks ahead on some different topics, but I don't have like a predetermined outcome. Uh, I'm trying to let the scriptures gradually inform my understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what His work should be in our lives and in the church. And I think the best way to try to trip over the truth Uh, to step out or adjust our neural pathways is to do something called biblical theology. Ironically, this doesn't mean that we are trying to do theology that's biblical, though I do wanna do that and we're gonna try to do that, but biblical theology um, means that our goal is to let the unfolding narrative of the Bible gradually teach us something. The opposite of it is systematic theology and that's like a large all at once information dump. Like here's everything we know about the Holy Spirit categorized, indexed, with scripture references to back it all up. There's a place for that and it can be very helpful, but that's like, that's the data that I don't just wanna just like, all over you. There's a place for it. But biblical theology tries to limit what we know, to pretend that we don't know other things that are talked about later in the Bible. Limit what we know now to what's been shared in scripture so far, rather than reading back into the text, the things about the Holy Spirit that are later revealed in the Bible. Another way of thinking about biblical theology is like I would call it narrative theology, which is just learning about God through the story, not a book on theology. I think that's our best shot at tripping over the truth. or reworking some healthy pathways in our brain to understand and enjoy the work of the Spirit in us individually and in our church. Whether you know it or not, um, we have neural pathways when it comes to our understanding of God and our understanding of Scripture. You hear a word or a concept is brought up and the neurons fire and they send one signal to the next and before you know it, you're kind of thinking along the same lines that you usually might. Example one, I tell you we're gonna do a series on spiritual disciplines. Maybe. Maybe you've worn down a rut or a pathway of being disappointed in yourself for not being as disciplined as you'd like or being the kind of Jesus follower that you think that you should be. So I say spiritual disciplines and the neurons fire and before you know it, you feel like a failure, like I'm not reading my Bible very much or I'm failing to take a Sabbath, I don't pray like I want to. Or maybe uh, maybe I bring up the Old Testament and your brain has kind of been trained to think about like, God's, um, like use of Israel in the conquest over the Canaanites and the violence that exists in the Old Testament. And maybe like you have friends that have left the church or abandoned their faith because of this or issues like it. So I say Old Testament and you're like, bam, 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 that's where your brain goes. Or maybe I tell you we're gonna do a series and talk about the Holy Spirit. What's the pathway? <laughs> what do you start to fear? Or what do you get excited about? What do you hope for? Are you, are you worried that we're gonna get weird? <laughs> are you hopeful that we might finally not be so stiff and spiritless? Do you think about a more like charismatic childhood that was your upbringing in the church? Or do you think about like an ingrained fear of the work of the spirit that you maybe learned early on in the development of your faith? Or do you have a pathway that causes you to think that people that are interested in the spiritual gifts like tongues, prophecy, and healing, that we think people like that are inherently less devoted to or committed to the authority of Scripture. That would be my pathway, one that I'm really hoping that God undoes for me. We have all got some theological neural pathways and you don't even necessarily need to know what they are, um, but to acknowledge that I probably have some. Without acknowledging it, we risk dismissing the information in the Bible as it comes to us because it doesn't fit in our rut. Or we risk yanking it out of context and forcing it to fit in our way of thinking so that it can kind of take us to the same place that we like to go. And so with that, we're gonna continue doing a overview of biblical theology on the Holy Spirit. Last week, we started in Genesis and we worked our way to Pentecost. Um, it might be helpful to go back and listen to it. I don't usually like recommend, like you should go back and listen to the sermons. It's not like I think they're so amazing, but that one might be helpful if, uh, to kind of get the background for what we're starting at today. Um, we looked at some key points in the Old Testament and in the gospels and saw how the person of the Holy Spirit is gradually revealed throughout the scripture. Um, I'll do a very fast review if you missed it. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, and that's the Hebrew word for wind or breath. So this is both like the name for the category of being, like an invisible, um, non-physical being, like a spirit, but it also is the word and it's like descriptive, the idea of an invisible, energizing force that makes the wind or makes the tree branches move or the clouds move. It's the invisible and energizing force that like gives us oxygen to live and to breathe. That's ruach. And in the Old Testament, it's the ruach Elohim, the spirit of God, or the ruach Yahweh, the spirit of the Lord. And what we find in the Old Testament is that this Ruach Elohim temporarily or situationally comes upon various people to empower them for specific tasks or purposes. But, later in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, David actually kind of equates the ruach, or the Spirit of God, with the actual presence of God, the person of God. So it's not right to think of ruach in the Old Testament as simply a force, it's not just wind, but it's the actual personal presence of God. And the prophets, later in the Old Testament, they describe two key future realities related to the Spirit. One, that the Spirit would fill someone called Messiah so that he could bring justice to God's world as, as God's servant. And the second thing is that they promised that God would someday fill all of his people with this rock, and this would somehow change the hearts of humans and enable them to obey and follow God, whereas before they couldn't. In the gospels, Jesus is depicted, like the prophets shared, he's depicted as receiving the Holy Spirit in his baptism when it descends on him like a dove and then the voice of the Father kind of rings out in that area and calls Jesus his beloved son. A little bit later, Jesus is in a synagogue reading from a scroll in Isaiah about a passage about the spirit of the sovereign Lord coming on the Messiah to bring justice and healing to the world and Jesus is like, that's happening right here in front of you in this moment. That's who I am, that's what's happening. And then in a conversation with his disciples before he's crucified and then again after he is raised, he promises that he would send a helper or an advocate, the Holy Spirit, to his disciples. Jesus ascends to heaven, 10 days go by, and then this small group of Jesus followers are gathered together and just like the prophet said, the Holy Spirit um, comes into those disciples and fills them. So, put it up on the screen really quick. In the Old Testament, spirit is empowering, energizing wind or breath but it's also actually the very personal person and presence of God. If you want to look up the scripture references, you could take a picture of this. Uh, the Spirit of God is active in creation, temporarily, situationally fills people, the people of God for specific tasks, promised to fill the Messiah with the Spirit of the Lord for his role, and promise to fill all of God's people with the Spirit and empower them to be faithful to God. And in the Gospels, among many things, but the main things, the Holy Spirit fills Jesus with, uh, is, fills Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into Jesus so he can bring healing and justice to those around him as Messiah, and is promised to be given to Jesus' disciples when he leaves. So this week, we're gonna start at Pentecost and go from there and focus on what the book of Acts can tell us about the Holy Spirit specifically. Interestingly, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contain a total of 52 references to the Holy Spirit, 12 in Matthew, seven in Mark, 17 in Luke, and 16 in John. As a percentage of the total word count in the gospel, the references to the Holy Spirit range from like six to 10%, is it up there? Nice. Um, There are 49 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts coming in at 27% of its total word count. Um, This book, A Biblical Theology of the Holy Spirit that I've been reading, They say, what in the Old Testament are occasional references to the Holy Spirit and in the Gospels become more frequent references to the Holy Spirit's work in and through Jesus in the present and his followers in the future have now in the book of Acts burst into full daylight and turned into a mighty crescendo of references to the Holy Spirit and his powerful work among the Jewish people and among the nations. And this is actually kind of subtly evident in the very first sentence of the book of Acts. So let's look at Acts chapter one, verse one. In my former book, my, referring to Luke, who's the author of Acts, so his former book, Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, it could be a Roman kind of military officer or some people think the name is like uh, Theo, which is God, and Philo, which is love, so a lover of God. So he's either writing it to everyone that loves God or someone named Theophilus. And in his former book, Luke says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the first volume was about what Jesus began to do. The implication is that what's about to follow in this next volume that he's writing, what's about to follow in Acts is about what Jesus is going to continue to do. But in eight short verses, Jesus will be taken up into the heavens, ascending to the throne. And so how will this book of Acts be about what Jesus continues to do? The answer is that it will be the continued work of the Spirit of Jesus. Multiple scholars have suggested that in reality, the book of Acts could just as readily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit rather than the Acts of the apostles. For our purposes today, biblical theology, the very first story actually in this book um, of the Holy Spirit I think sets the tone um, for what we're supposed to learn, what, what the book of Acts kind of by itself should teach us about the Holy Spirit. And it's not totally different from what the Holy Spirit's been doing in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, but it's unique and special. So let's look at verses four and five. On one occasion, while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus instructs His disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift that He had promised back before He died and then also now, tells them to wait and promises that they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to be fully immersed and soaked in the Spirit. Something about what Jesus says right there, wait here, John baptized you with water, but I'm gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Something about them hearing that makes them ask this next question that they ask in verse six. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they hear they're gonna be baptized in the Holy Spirit and they think, oh, it's go time, let's do it. They asked Jesus, "Is now, finally, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to us? In other words, is this baptism of the Spirit going to be like what Gideon had? Where the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and gave him like strength to judge Israel and strength to defend Israel from its enemies. Or the is this going to be like when David received the Spirit to lead Israel? I think they might be asking, are we about, are we receiving power to take our nation back? Over and over again in the Gospels, the disciples misunderstand Jesus' intentions and methods. If you heard like any of our teachings in Matthew, we probably talked about how they were misunderstanding what Jesus was doing as Messiah as he was launching the kingdom. They kept thinking that it was a military revolt or an overthrow, and he kept reminding them actually that he's gonna lay down his life. But now, after he's died and risen, they hear about this baptism of the Spirit, and they're like, okay, now it's time. But Jesus responds in verse seven and eight. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says it's not your place to know when that kind of restoration of the nation of Israel is gonna happen, but you will receive a type of power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And that power will not be to fight and revolt, but to be Jesus's witnesses in Jerusalem, and also in the surrounding Judea area to their enemies in Samaria and to the ends of the known world. I think this is like a thesis statement of the book of Acts and sets the tone for what we should look for in the story. Um, The Holy Spirit filled the apostles with the Spirit and he gave them the power not to take over their enemies but to bring the message of Jesus to their enemies and to the whole world. Side note, fun fact, the promise of being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, paired with the next story that's coming in this book, which is the story of Pentecost, and all these people hearing the praise of God in their own language. It is a reversal and a redemption of one of the most ancient stories in Scripture, and it's really cool. So just think about it, see if you can figure it out. Think about what's happening. People from all over the world are coming back to this central location uh, for Pentecost. They're hearing lots of different languages, but they're not confused, they're understanding. They're hearing and what they're hearing is that Jesus is the risen Messiah. This is the reversal and the redemption of Babel where the people of God were once scattered and divided by language and geography. They are now united in one place. They're given the Holy Spirit and then commissioned to go back out to the ends of the earth to scatter again in the power of the Spirit to bear witness to Jesus. It's kind of beautiful. When I was writing um, the first half, like the introduction kind of foundational thoughts for this teaching, I had planned to, I don't know why I thought it was gonna happen, to go through like just about every reference to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And I was like, oh, there's like 50. That's probably not gonna work. But I imagined we'd like take our time through all these references, just this beautiful slow journey forming in this moment, new pathways in our mind, you know? Maybe we'd trip over some truth together. But there are too many references. Uh, So in this book, On a Biblical Theology of the Holy Spirit, I've been reading there's a chart, a very helpful chart that has every reference to the Holy Spirit condensed and one sentence that's kind of like a summary statement of what that passage is doing. Um, And I'm gonna blast through it in like a minute if I can. If as it's happening, you're like, what are we doing? Just later this week, just read through the book of Acts. Pause, just skim through it, like scan through the book of Acts for the word spirit or Holy Spirit, and then stop there and kind of look at what the context is, look at what's happening around it, and just see what happens. Um, But these are references with descriptions. We're not cheating, this isn't systematic theology, don't worry, this is an in-order list of the references to the spirit in Acts, and I think it helps to paint an overview of what the spirit is doing and what we can learn about him in the book of Acts. So. Chapter one, verse two, Jesus gave commands to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. Chapter one, verse four, Jesus tells believers to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. One, verse five, Jesus baptized with water, but believers will soon be baptized with the Spirit. One, eight, Jesus' followers will receive power to be witnesses to the ends of the earth when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Chapter one, verse 16, talks about scripture being uh, fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. Chapter two, verse four, believers are filled with the Holy Spirit who is poured out at Pentecost. Chapter two, 17 and 18 is fulfillment of prophecy. In the last days, God will pour out His Spirit. This is from Joel chapter two. Acts two thirty three: the coming of the Holy Spirit proves that Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand. Chapter two, verse 38, all who repent and believe receive the Holy Spirit, 3,000 believers added. Chapter four, verses eight and 10, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit defending a healing before the Sanhedrin. Chapter four, verses 25 and 26, the Holy Spirit predicted opposition to the Lord's Messiah through David in Psalm two. Chapter four, verse 31, early Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit to speak God's word boldly. Chapter five, verses three and five and nine, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, are struck dead and there's great fear in this church. Acts five thirty-two. the Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus along with early believers. Acts 6, three, administrators of the daily distribution to widows are to be full of the Spirit. Acts 6, five, verse 10, and chapter seven, 55 and 59 talk about Stephen, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit becomes the first Christian martyr. Acts 7, 51, the people of Israel have always resisted the Holy Spirit, for the Old Testament prophets. Chapter eight, Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit when Peter and John lay hands on them. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Chapter eight, verses 19 and 20, the Spirit is not for sale, nor can his distribution be licensed. This is Peter talking to Simon. Chapter eight, 29, the Spirit sends Philip to evangelize to an Ethiopian eunuch and carries him away to do that. Chapter nine, 17 and 18, Saul receives the Holy Spirit upon his conversion in Damascus. You guys doing okay? We're like just over halfway there. I'll do it even faster. It wasn't a joke, we really are only halfway there. I got lost. I shouldn't. Have, I shouldn't have talked to you. Nine yeah. thirty-one. Great. Church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Thanks, Sam. Uh, in the help of the Holy Spirit, grew. Chapter ten, verses nineteen. The Holy Spirit directs Peter to go to Cornelius. Acts ten thirty-eight. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Ten forty-four through forty-seven. The Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and the believing members of his household. Acts eleven sixteen, Peter recounts the Holy Spirit coming on Cornelius and remembers Jesus' words. 11:17, God gives the Spirit to all who believe, no one can resist. Acts eleven twenty-four, Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 11:28, the prophet Agabus, by the Spirit, foretells of a worldwide famine in the days of Claudius. 13, 2 and 4, the Holy Spirit tells the church to set apart Barnabas and Paul for a mission work. 13.9, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, confronts Elemus, the magician. 13.52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 15.8, the Holy Spirit given also to Gentiles. The Holy Spirit imposes no other burden on Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. Acts 16.6 and 7, the Holy Spirit forbids work in Asia. The Spirit of Jesus thwarts work in Bithynia. 19.2 and 6, Paul tells ignorant Ephesian disciples about the Holy Spirit and they receive him. Acts 19, 21, Paul resolves by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem by way of Macedonia and Achaia, planning also to go to Rome. Acts 20, 22, Paul says he is compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to Paul that persecutions await him in every town. 20, 28, Paul's farewell to Ephesian elders whom the Holy Spirit made overseers. 21.4, believers and the prophet Agabus warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Finally, in 28.25, the Holy Spirit spoke to the ancient Israelites through the prophet Isaiah. There's not a lot of chapters that don't have multiple references to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I realized I had underlined and italicized two themes, on my notes and as, as I was reading through those that hopefully would draw your attention to it, but I don't know that they were on the screen. Um, there are two themes. If you read through those, if you can see them all on one page, definite themes of who the Holy Spirit is. What has, what has the book of Acts taught us? What, is it, what has it shown us about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does? The Holy Spirit fills and empowers the church for its mission. Most all of those passages have something to do with one or both of those ideas filling and empowering. Now, you may have already known that. That might be one of the most basic things that I've ever said. If I had asked you before church on your way in, like, hey, do you feel like the Holy Spirit fills and empowers the church for its mission? Probably would have been like, yeah, sure. But I'm here to tell you as we are doing biblical theology hoping that we might trip over some truth or make sure our mental pathways and our minds are taking us to the right spot. This is the story of the book of Acts and the recounting of the rapid growth of the early church. If we we knew nothing else, if we knew nothing about Corinth and the arguments and the debates they were having about the gifts, nothing about Romans eight, what we would know just from Acts is that these people were filled with the Spirit of God and they were animated, energized, and empowered by the Spirit of God to bring the message of Jesus, of His death and His resurrection to the world. Not just, the, re- the references don't say this part, but it bears noting, not just with their words, but also with signs, wonders, miracles, healing, prophecy, and speaking in tongues. There was the message, and then in many cases, there was the demonstration of its truth with signs and wonders. And so I'll say a few short things about each of those, the filling and the empowering, we're almost done. So the first thing that we see in Acts is that the Holy Spirit fills or baptizes each and every person who says Jesus is Lord. There there are some unique circumstances. If you know the book of Acts and, and saw the references to like Cornelius' house and the Samaritans, those are two like unique situations. But by and large, the evidence of Acts shows that the moment a person believes in Jesus, they are baptized in or filled with the Holy Spirit. This is one of those times where we remind ourselves that we're doing biblical theology. We don't know the rest of the Bible yet. We're just thinking about Acts. So if there was some other baptism experience, where the Holy Spirit fell on a person in a special way for special ministry, I don't see it in Acts. I'm not saying it's not real at this point, I just don't see it here in Acts. The other thing to keep in mind is that in Acts, both baptism and filling, I think are two ideas of expressing the same thing. To be filled with the Spirit is to be immersed, soaked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus used the phrase, I think, creatively, artistically, to say that he was gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit, kind of opposing to what John was doing, baptizing with water. But as Luke tells the story, and as we see the words of the apostles and the disciples, they use the phrase, filled with the Spirit. I think these are two ways of expressing the same thing. The main point though, is that this promise of the Spirit is universal. Literally, any and everyone who calls Jesus Lord is baptized or filled with the Spirit, and there are no exceptions. The second point is that the Holy Spirit fills people so that they can bear witness to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit empowers the church for its mission and directs it. The story of Acts is the apostles and disciples being filled, empowered, and directed by the Spirit to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave them at the beginning of Acts. We read it in verses four and five. Uh, or seven and eight, sorry, that they would receive power when the Spirit comes on them and they would take the message, they'd be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what happens throughout the book of Acts. Acts two, 3,000 people in Jerusalem joining the church on day one. And then at the end in Acts twenty-eight thirty-one, it shows Paul in house arrest in Rome, which was like the end of the world to them. That was like the ultimate destination where the gospel could go. When they say the ends of the earth, we think like remote, like the most remote place, but they were thinking like, we are remote. The gospel needs to go to like the center of civilization, the center of the world. Um, And so it ends with Paul in house arrest in Rome, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but that means that uh, Jesus' commission in Acts 1 to the disciples was actually fulfilled in one generation they launched the global church in the power of the spirit and the gospel got all the way to rome it's beautiful so if we looked again at all those references that we read through the work of the spirit in acts we would see the theme of filling and of empowering and direction the spirit is the dynamic and authoritative leader of this new fledgling Christian movement. He's giving the apostles boldness and clarity and the ability to like defend miracles that they're doing. He's giving them clear direction on places to go, people to share the gospel with. He's compelling the church to be set apart, to set people apart for evangelism, Paul and Silas among others. He's directing these early churches to set apart for themselves elders or shepherds for their churches. In other words, the Spirit isn't just saying like, hey, I'm here now, I'm, I'm, I've filled you, I'm in. He's saying, I'm here now, so let's go. You have everything that you need to do, everything that I need you to do. So that's the Holy Spirit Acts. empowers, fills and empowers the church for its mission. Now again, over the coming weeks, there's gonna be more kind of natural opportunity for um, what the Bible reveals about the work of the Spirit to kind of like inform our daily life, um, the rhythms of our church. I wanna be shaped by the teachings in the scriptures. Um, So we're kind of like, I think, I hope, building up to a holistic understanding of the Spirit. And so I'm kind of like waiting until we have our minds wrapped around as much as we can, the content, particularly of the New Testament and the Spirit's work. But for now, I think we have one for sure application from everything that we've read so far about the Holy Spirit. If we're filled with the Spirit, let's be directed by the Spirit. If we are filled with the Spirit, let's be directed by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not um, an expression of God. It's not merely um, an empowering force that like makes you brave. The Holy Spirit is God Himself present in you and filling you. If you are in Christ, you have been immersed in or baptized in, filled with the very person and the presence of God. And so if we as a church listen for the Spirit's direction in our lives, and I'd I'd like for us to do that, I'd like for us to grow in that, um, that process and that habit of listening, I'd say we should actually let him direct and lead us like we see is happening with this church in Acts. And so I would love for us to end our time uh, just with some space to listen to this spirit that is in you. I forget, I literally forget this all the time, like oh yeah, I forgot that the Lord is in me, that we have access to him. And so um, maybe all you need to hear me say is just, hey, we're gonna spend some time listening and you're like, sweet, I know what to do. I'm gonna go do it. Um, That's great. If you would like a prompt, here's some things that you can pray. Holy Spirit, you are my God. You are with me and in me, you have filled me. Maybe just acknowledge that. And then I humbly ask you to give me direction right now. Is there sin I need to confess? Is there something that you are empowering or directing me to talk about Jesus with? Is there work or ministry in this world that you have empowered and directed me to do that I'm not doing yet? Maybe you can echo the words of the prophets and say, here I am, send me. And finally say, I I trust that you've empowered me with everything I need to do whatever you direct me to do.